Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, I'm joined here by Ryan. Hey, film fans! And Austin. Yo! And introducing a new part of the Wisecrack crew, Carrie. Hi guys. Today we are breaking down Cabin in the Woods, the 2012 film directed by Drew Goddard. So, let's always... Oh, and by the way, wait, I just want wait, to wait, apologize. Wait, Drew Goddard, did he become related to, uh, like, French... Uh, theorists, or is it just Jean Luc? Yeah, or is it just Drew Goddard? <laughs> I don't know. To be honest, it probably it could be Goddard. Maybe that's just my pretentious film school <laughs> self saying Goddard. Isn't it spelled the same way though? I think there's is there an, one less D. I, I think there's one more D. Okay. Well, he should just go with Goddard. I mean, I'm sure he went with Goddard, and that's how he got hired, like Stephen anyway. Colbert did. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right, anyway, I want to apologize to everybody. We said that we would be doing Zodiac, but we had our collaborator that we were going to bring on. We had a special guest, and uh, he had to change schedules. So apologies if you watched Zodiac in preparation for this. But we've got a different movie, a really exciting one to talk about, and we will be talking about Zodiac soon. So apologies for the confusion. But as always, let's go around and get some first impressions about the first time you saw this movie and what it's like revisiting it. Let's start with Ryan. Well, um, Cabin in the Woods is what I want every movie to be. When I when I sit down at the movie theater, I want to watch Cabin in the Woods Amen. every time. It's uh it's funny, it's hilarious, it's scary, I think genuinely. It's got awesome effects, great filmmaking, awesome cool characters, super self-aware in a funny way, I think, but I'm sure we'll talk about that. And yeah, I love it. Couldn't love it more. And so how many times have you seen this movie? I mean, I would say probably 10. I wow. saw it a lot when it came out. You know, I, I feel like I saw it a bunch when it first came out. And this, but it's been a couple of years, but I, I I notice new stuff every time. It's probably my favorite movie of the podcast we've done, too. So oh. I'm excited to talk Damn. about it. Yeah. Even more than Wolf of Wall Street? Barely. <laughs> All right, Austin, what about you? Yeah, I agree 100% across the board. And I forget sometimes how much... I love this movie. And then when we chose this, I got like physically excited. And uh, <laughs> it was weird. I was like, oh my God, I'm actually really excited to watch this movie now. Um, yeah, I wrote an article for a movie review website about the meta commentary and philosophical themes of this film a few years back. And I uh, I just think it's smart. It's sharp. It's funny. Everything Ryan said, I, I have nothing to add. Like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio says in Catch Me If You Can, I concur. Ah, uh, <laughs> all right. What about you, Carrie? I think it's terrible. I'm kidding. All right. <laughs> I agree with all of you. It's very funny. Hater. Ever the I, contrarian. Ever I, the contrarian. I, I, I have a different opinion. No, I am. Um, I was so glad when you picked this movie because I haven't seen it in years, and I had forgotten most of it, which is awesome. Because then it's like watching it for the first time again, like like going to Disneyland for the first time twice. So. Um, I think it's really funny. I love all the different references they bring into other horror movies. And uh, and I love the REO Speedwagon song. Cool. <laughs> all right. Well, guys, I have to keep it real. As much as I would love to uh, agree with you all, bring I, it on, actually, I actually hate this movie. Oh, yeah. I, I, Fuck I, yeah. I, I really detest this movie. Um, and it's not even that it's not boring. You know, th this is where I get like extra, extra douchey is where like, you know, I, I think even I think maybe Ryan and I saw it together the first time or if not, we saw it around the same time. And I would tell people that, yeah, that movie's enjoyable, 
I had fun watching it, but fuck that movie. It's the most <laughs> arrogant, smug piece of shit that I've ever seen. And I actually think that it is uh, it is detrimental to cinema. Oh, um, and, you know, having, having said that, and I know that, yeah, now all right, this is going to be a good podcast because we disagree. Yeah, it's, I can't wait. It would suck if it was just a big old circle jerk. But um, it's weird watching. So, I, you know, I had that opinion the first time I saw the movie back in 2012. But now we live in a post-Deadpool world where this kind of stuff is like the trendiest of the trendy. So I like I found myself kind of reacting to it a little less abrasively this time because this is just a thing now. You know, I guess that in 2012, the Avengers, Cabin in the Woods, all this super self-aware humor was becoming the trend. Now <laughs> Both it's written by Joss Whedon. This isn't – was it written by Joss Whedon? He, yeah. He, he co- produced it. He put his he, name he on it. He co-wrote it. Okay, yeah. So I don't like Joss Whedon. So that's yeah. another thing. Me either. Um, I Usually, love <clears throat> although I do like, like the Doctor like Doc Buffy, Doctor or the, any. Haven't seen Buffy. I like the Doctor horrible sing along movie a lot. <laughs> that's your I, thing I think you that, like of yeah, and uh, I think that's pretty much. I, I don't know. I haven't like the things that I've seen of his. I've been so lukewarm towards. I haven't really felt the ne- the necessity to look deeper. So this is going to be an episode full of unpopular opinions from me. Uh, so. Um, yeah, that's that. <laughs> so before we get into the specifics, I'm going to take us into a recap. Um, all right. So typical college age horror film victims, Dana, Kurt, Jules, Marty and Holden are on their way to a weekend getaway at a cabin in the woods. Upon arrival, the crew is confronted with a number of familiar horror movie cliches, including creepy paintings, a two way mirror and a cellar full of creepy objects like a squeeze box, a diary, a medallion and a Hellraiser esque sphere. Much to the objection of the stoner Marty, Dana reads from the diary, causing zombies to rise from the ground. It's eventually revealed that their trip is being surveilled and manipulated by a high-tech underground corporation. We follow working stiffs Stitterson and Hadley as they try to lure the teens into gruesome deaths in service of a mysterious overlord. A late-night tryst in the woods is interrupted when Jules is murdered by the undead, forcing the rest of the crew to batten down the hatches. Marty is dragged away and presumed dead, while Stitterson and Hadley funnel the victim's bloods to an unknown destination downstairs. Things escalate at the corporation when the Japan office fails to murder the victim stuck in a J-horror equivalent to the cabin, leaving it all up to the employees of the American office to make sure the, quote, ancients don't rise. Kurt tries to jump past the invisible digital wall, trapping them in the woods, and Holden gets stabbed in the neck while driving, causing Dana and the van to go crashing into the water. Having successfully killed all the students except the optional virgin, a.k.a. Dana, everyone at the office celebrates until they get the memo from high up that Marty is still alive. Marty takes Dana underground where they see all the horror movie monsters that match the cliches in the cellar. Together, Dana and Marty infiltrate the corporation where they are told that their sacrifice is needed to placate the ancient ones, lest they wake up and wreak unimaginable havoc. Armed forces try to hunt down Dana and Marty, so they unleash the horror movie monsters on the entire corporation, killing most of the employees, including Hadley. Dana stabs Stitterson and enters the ritual room where the director tells them that every culture has their own ritual sacrifice. In order for the American version of the sacrifice to occur, five teens that fit the classic American horror film character tropes must be sacrificed. The whore, the athlete, the scholar, the fool, and the optional virgin. The director tells Marty that if he doesn't die, the world will end. Dana's just about to kill Marty when a werewolf bites her, and a zombie girl kills the director. And finally, Dana and Marty share a joint as the Ancient Ones emerge to destroy the Earth. End of movie. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So before we get to the first point, I just want to give a shout out to uh, if you guys enjoy the stuff that we do, I highly recommend you check out wisecrackplus.com where we have more podcasts that focus on some of the videos that we've done and we have course schedules and stuff like that. And uh, we interact with you guys on our Discord chat. So be sure to check that out. And moving on to the first point. So let's just talk about the whole meta thing. I actually am extremely curious as to what you wrote about Austin because I would actually take issue with the fact that this movie's meta at all. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I'm curious as to why you don't think there's any sort of meta commentary. Okay. So let's take a me- like a, a movie that I consider to be truly meta. Okay. South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Has everyone seen that? Yeah. No. Sorry. Oh, man. No, it's okay. <laughs> all right. So basically, in South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, the reason why it's meta is because there's a commentary on our real world. So they draw a parallel between the South Park parents scapegoating the show Terrence and Philip for their kids' problems, which mirrors the meta commentary is that real-life parents are scapegoating South Park for their kids' problems. But this movie's meta element points to nothing. There aren't any elements that point to anything outside the text. It's basically, you know, the meta element is in the actual movie, like the writers or like the people in the corporation. That's just part of the text. That's not like some outside the text point. Mm, yeah. That's what I, it means I, to be meta. I, I disagree. I mean, to me. I disagree. I think that all of these little comments about how, well, we're not the only ones watching and you've got to keep the customer satisfied. And then when the new security guard is talking with the woman, I can't remember what her role is. And she says, oh, you know, it's all this violence and shit and blah, 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 blah. You get used to it. And he looks at her and he says, should you? The whole film is a meta commentary on why audiences love horror films and whether or not we should love horror films. But it's done by embedding it within this idea of how we need to keep the unconscious monsters of the real at bay through some sort of sacrifice. And the way that we do that is through this weird, perverse, conservative enjoyment of the whore getting killed and the, the, these people being sacrificed on our behalf as we watch horror films. So the meta element is all about how audiences love to watch, you know, boobs and brutality and all this other stuff and beheadings and because that's what keeps our monsters at bay because as they say we're not the only ones watching and that's a wink wink nod right. nod by Bradley Whitford to the audience. I see I, I I disagree. I think that so I would agree with you and I'm also tempted to read the film that way, but in order to do that the ancient ones have to represent something. But I think that they don't. When 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 he's saying we're not the only ones watching, I don't like I don't think he's winking to the audience. I think he's talking about that the director and the ancient ones are watching and they are the ones that must be appeased. Could it not be now, both? Yeah, it's Perhaps. like a South Park so, episode. So, I think it's got so double let's, meaning. All right, let's, let's have that be the first question. What do the ancient ones represent? So we already heard from Austin. What do you think, Ryan and Carrie? Do they represent anything? Or is it just, you know, cosmic horror? Carrie, you want to go first? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you could read it both ways. Um, I do think you could read it as a wink and a nod to how audiences want to see the same thing over and over. And they want... They want it to be served up exactly the same way each time with all these particular horror movie tropes where the horror dies first and the virgin may or may not survive at the end. Um, but that's not the way I originally read it. I, I hear what you're saying, Jared, in that they never really 
it felt like to me they were setting up this underworld that you know the ancients represent perhaps the devil or or demons or in any way the opposite of god i'll put it that way so they're always talking about downstairs and then at one point they mentioned upstairs and how there was a uh, a power surge from upstairs and i thought oh they're going to they're going to bring god into this now but then they didn't so so it's almost like they have this dark side these demons who live downstairs and they're not they're not setting it opposite something upstairs if that makes sense Sure. I mean, one of my readings, and, and I think this is more to what Austin is saying. This is how I was tempted to read it. I was tempted to read it. I, I think that it's not insignificant that it's called a ritual that all societies mm-hmm. take part in. So we see the J-horror version. Right. And then we see, uh, you know, that happens in Japan. And then we see in a couple of other countries this happens. And I think that what uh, what I think is trying to be said is that horror movies serve a form of catharsis, like in the Aristotelian sense, mm-hmm. that – um, and then the ancient ones, I guess, the ancient ones emerging are perhaps a world without that catharsis. Like if we don't have horror movies that, uh, you know, that kill the beautiful and the young for our own cathartic enjoyment, if we don't have that, then perhaps the ancient ones represent the inner demons of ourselves that uh, we don't get to uh, exercise out of our bodies and our psyches without that catharsis. And so, you know, if there are no horror movies and we don't get to uh feel this enjoyment for uh, horror movies of beautiful young people getting killed, then, you know, the worst part of our nature is that we don't get to exercise from our psyche will come up and destroy the world. That's how I'm tempted to read it. Why don't you read it that way? Um, Because I just don't think there's really that much indication. I feel like I'm projecting. I don't really feel like there's a lot of evidence in the text to well, suggest see, that. I, I feel like and, that's, and, that's... And, ultimately, and ultimately, I think that the the comedy comes from something else. And it's not. And, and I'll get to that after that, but I want to hear what Austin well, has to say. I was going to say, that's a bit more of the meta reading, which I think is fine. I think there are three ways to read this film. There's the film at the level of the plot. There's the film at the level of the meta. And then there's the psychoanalytic reading. And they all kind of infuse one another. But what you were just talking about was how you're, you're tempted to read it in, I think, is what I would call the meta reading. But I would say at the level of plot, we can just simply say that what the gods represent in a very simple sort of, I think, in a one-to-one correspondence is just the idea that that human systems have always been driven by this, this conservative need to sacrifice, right? Blood sacrifice. So you have that painting, for example, in the bedroom that shows the sacrificial lamb. Right. And so this yes. idea of needing a blood sacrifice to appease the, the the gods of our culture in order to make them happy so that we can have um, some sort of peaceful social life here in the material world is necessary. And so at that level of plot, I think that's quite explicit. So that these gods are basically the gods of the world. Now, it's a very monotheistic reading because – not all gods of, of religion around the world desire that kind of blood sacrifice, but it is very common. So um, obviously we talked about Rene Girard in our uh, second installment of our Nolan video who talks about this need for a sacrifice. It's under different conditions for Girard. For him, it has to do with mimetic rivalry and then you have the scapegoat and the scapegoat actually becomes the god. But in this instance, this is more of the sort of like way that we caricature uh, Judeo-Christian sacrifice in monotheism. Um, uh, so we'll, we'll just say like the Judeo-Christian Islamic monotheistic understanding of sacrifice where a blood sacrifice is needed to keep the gods at bay and a God is a vengeful, bloodthirsty God who needs this. And I think in a very simple sense, that is, is very apparent at the level of plot. 
Is that, I mean, do you not see that or? <clears throat> so first of all, I'm not saying that I'm right and you're wrong. I'm right, saying right. that I'm reading it a different way and I'm going to point to some evidence that's, that I think at least supports my reading. And, and, and so I, sorry, Brian, you want to say something? Well, I was just going to give my opinion on the meta thing before sure, you go on. I mean, for me, the most fun reading of the movie is just the plot version, not looking into the, not looking into it, the meta version I don't like, or it's just not as fun as just there are giant gods that live under our earth that, <laughs> that are making us make these horror tropes happen. That's hilarious, right. you know, just in in and of itself, in terms of a fun, high concept B movie, not getting into any of the subtext, I think that's just an awesome movie. And then moving into uh, what I think the subtext means in the meta part, I do think that Austin's pretty much probably what the writers were thinking that, you know, that, that we basically are the big evil gods in a sense. It's not really explicit, but, but, but it's, but, it's, it, but, I don't it, think but so. either way, it's not that, like I said, I think that's, that's secondary to just them playing on all these horror movie cliches. Right. See, so, so I agree with you in that the whole point of the movie is to shit on horror movie cliches. That's like, a and, big and, part of it, but and it is fun. But I think while, you can't get it. while still dipping into horror tropes. With once again, we have these and getting into this cosmic horror, yeah, thing. this mythology stuff. That, right, this that mythology. He's so, so another into. thing is that we are given little bits of information about who these ancients are. So apparently, these ancients used to rule the world, and now that we've banished them below. Yeah. So uh, what is that like? Some sort of Hobbesian state of nature or something like that, <laughs> Austin? Like the, the 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 brutal cells of parts of ourselves that we've been able to keep underground through this ritual purge of negative feelings or something like that I mean, I, mean I, I I don't think I don't think it's it's Hobbesy and I think it's I think uh, at one level it's it's again it's that judeo-christian idea that the gods will wreak havoc they used to have control it's like Neil Gaiman have you ever read um uh what is um, God as an American God is that is one of them. I have yeah. not read it. Uh, so Neil Gaiman talks about this idea where you have these uh, in this in this this story that and they just turned it into a TV series, which I have yet to see. But um, you know, you had this this world where the old gods used to run amok, but now the new gods are kind of encroaching on it. And I think it's it's obviously not the same because there are no new gods, but it's this idea that the world used to be governed by a particular theological orientation, right, under the ancient world, and now it's not that way because humans have developed society, and so the gods, in order to be pacified and allow humans to run their world. You know, you've got Marty who kind of talks about this, right? That society is filling in the cracks and all that shit at the beginning. Um, and so in order to keep those cracks plugged, you have the societal structures, but that bellowing under the surface are always this, these, these angry gods and they just demand blood, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I think that we can agree well, that we're more or less on the same page of what it could represent. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Carrie. I was just going to say quickly to your point, Jared, about these gods being a part of ourselves that we've suppressed. I mean, I think it didn't the Greek gods like weren't they also thought of as emotions that that possessed people like Ares was the god of anger. So sort of that that you could become possessed by these um, negative emotions. And they were it, it was thought that you were being possessed by that god, that particular god. So I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a psychoanalytic reading that I think fits into that, that kind of what Carrie was just saying about this idea of projection of ourselves, covering over the real, um, 
So Jacques Lacan has this this famous saying where he says, um, the real supports the fantasy, the fantasy protects the real. And his point is that the real is pure excess, right? The real is, uh, he uses the word jouissance or actually surplus jouissance, which isn't just simple pleasure. It's not just like satisfaction of a need or a want or a lack, but rather it's just pure excessive enjoyment. And if that were able to run unfettered, it would kill us. So what we do is we develop these uh, language has developed these uh, symbolic systems of law and, and speech and things like that to cover over it. And so we live through the world of the symbolic order and then the fantasy. And so the fantasy is supported by the real. The real is always there informing the fantasy, but the fantasy always protects us from the really real. So the monsters and things like that, yeah, they're scary, but really they're just fantastic projections of the grossest parts of humanity that protect us from the really real, which would actually destroy us. So the gods, and this is with a psychoanalytic reading, the gods, the ancient ones, are actually the really real that would completely right. destroy us if we didn't have the fantasy of the monsters that engage in this activity. So the monsters, the werewolves and the zombies and things like what that. What is it the monsters are just horror movie tropes? Yeah, they're horror movie tropes that are fantasies to protect us from the really real because the really real will kill us and we can't have that. But we can deal with the monsters because the monsters are just projections of the worst parts about humanity. So really what this film is telling us is that what's horrific isn't monsters as like some sort of other, but rather the monsters as projections of the human. Right. I think we're on the same page uh, in terms of how one might read that. Now, what I'm going to go into is why I think that my theory is that we're giving them too much credit. <laughs> and that is because ultimately I don't think the ancient ones represent anything. I think that I think that there are some hints once again horror movies as a ritual will lead us to this more psycho excuse me, this more psychoanalytic angle. However, the re the way that the movie builds its comedy and its overall premise really seems to suggest that it's only meta for the sake of disillusioning the audience from horror film tropes. So there's actually a couple clever ways that this is done, and I'll mention one in a second. But first, I want to talk about the ones that I think just prove to me that what this movie is trying to do more than any way is smugly just tear down the logic of cinema, specifically horror cinema. Um, so let's take the example for when after the zombies arise and they realize that they need to batten down the hatches inside, they say, no matter what happens, we need to stay together. And then people, the operators in the room say, fuck, calm down, they're gonna, fuck, we're gonna, they're, they're gonna stay together. All right, watch the masters at work. And then this gas comes out, and then Kurt inhales the gas, and he says, this isn't right. And Dana says, Was what's the matter? And he says, this isn't right, we should split up, we should cover more ground that way. And this is a part in the movie theater, I remember everyone was laughing. And, uh, I, and I can agree that it's funny, but my problem here is that the joke, the joke, the reason why people are laughing is because they're making fun of the fact that horror writers bend logic to create conflict. Mm -hmm. The logical thing were for them to stay together, but splitting up makes them more vulnerable, therefore more conducive to conflict, more conducive to horror, horror thrills. So the problem I have with this is that this is a horror writer's job. This is like, if I may be hyperbolic, this movie is basically just, you know, pointing out uh, subjecting cinema to a level of criticism that it was not built for and then dancing on its grave. For me, what makes cinema powerful is that it can make you suspend disbelief and accept these seemingly illogical things that heighten the conflict. And But it's fun. Well, yeah, and, 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 and I'm not saying it's not fun. I'm not saying <laughs> it's and, not fun. And funny. I, I'm not saying that it's not fun or funny. As I said, I enjoyed the movie, but I, my, well question, my question is... And I'm not saying it's not that either. Yeah. I'm saying that does it erode the effectiveness of the medium? 
Um, or, or does so it transform? And, and my it ultimate in... my ultimate problem with this is at the end of the day, this movie could have been made with any movie genre. Every genre has its familiar tropes. Every genre right. suspends logic to maximize conflict in an hour and a half. But not much and, of the death and stuff in them. I mean, like whatever. We can do. pat ourselves on the back thinking we're clever that we can point out these tropes and then trivialize them. I mean, this could have been a corporation that manipulated people in the cabin to act within the tropes of a rom-com or a screwball comedy or a sappy drama. This could have like, been done with anything. Dude, but we have. Let, 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 okay, let me bring up going. another example. Do you hate so, Scream, an, by the way? Do you hate Scream? Yeah. You know, to be honest, I haven't. I, I understand what you're asking because Scream is. It's like the thing where it's like, oh, it's like the you know the proto or, or yeah, it is the prototypical postmodern film because it's about uh, them deconstructing horror tropes as it happens to them. Right. Okay. If, right. if Scream is postmodern, then Cabin in the Woods is metamodern. And for people who are wondering what the fuck that means, check out the YouTube video on Shia LaBeouf and metamodernism <laughs> on the Wisecrack channel. But uh, yeah. but for real, uh, so but if, see, the, the, but the, the, no, what I disagree with is I don't think that this movie is in order for it to be metamodern it has to in a sense it can trivialize what makes a horror movie but ultimately still has to appreciate the medium but I think that this is complete nihilistic deconstruction really see I think it's really yeah. sincere yeah uh, me too I, d- I think the, I, I these guys love horror movies you, right. don't, you, don't, you think Drew Goddard I, doesn't like horror movies I mean I would imagine that because he made this movie he probably does and I can see that there are a lot of references to horror movies so certainly he probably personally likes them but do I think that it's communicated within the movie I don't I think see, that actually it's extremely abrasive and just kind of like kind of smug cheap shots if it were smug cheap shots then they wouldn't bathe in the boobs and the violence and they wouldn't have that amazing fucking cacophony of monsters where every monster ever just eats everything which i think is an amazing epic scene but that's why i think i think that there is a profound respect for the horror genre it's it's sort of like it's critiquing but then at the same time it's saying but nevertheless this is how we love it and and this is why we enjoy it but maybe we shouldn't enjoy it so much but you know what fuck it here i'm gonna spoon feed it to you anyway and so there is this like self-referentiality that i think it's a punk rock movie jared so here's the distinction here's the distinction ryan said earlier that he thought the movie was scary in order for it to be metamodern in my opinion it would have to give us this critical distance of horror tropes which we can all agree it does but it would also have to be scary and i don't think the movie's scary i think that it's less scary i, than I, th- it is I think funny, that once it... you understand the premise which happens pretty early on it's purely comedy huh okay i'll give you that i mean i i uh and i love it for that <laughs> i mean but it, it is a little scary it's less scary but than th- it is so funny. the difference between me and you ryan is that you we both enjoyed the movie but I'm just. But you hate the movie. That's what I don't get. Well, I don't. I hate the movie you because hate the movie. I fucking hate this movie. Because, <laughs> but you enjoyed the shit out of it. What the hell does that fu- mean? I don't know. Like, because it, it's like, uh, it's like uh, you know, if you, I mean, have you ever gone to a buffet and just eaten too much and then you feel like shit afterwards and you're course. like, wow, this wasn't good for me. But man, that that steak was super tasty. Yeah, but I, that's how I feel about this movie. Well, yeah, but I love those. I love those buffets. But I um, do too. I mean, you know, I love buffets. I just went to Vegas I, solely for the buffets. I don't like. Like meta stuff for the sake of being meta either you know like i like i it has to be very well done you know like a deadpool like a cabin in the woods you know for for me to really love it and i and i love both of those what's an example of bad meta um i think judd apatow and them kind of do some pretty bad meta that's just kind of like lazy they just kind of turn the camera on and sausage it's just fest. kind of like you, you can tell well no sausage i actually party. love sausage, sausage party, yeah, sausage party <laughs> is it does have some lazy stuff in it but yeah that so you're getting close but i also like that movie a lot but yeah like like they do some kind of they just are like ha 
oh, we're making a movie and you know, we know it's a movie and you do too, but it's kind of like, yeah, so why would I care if you're making a movie that you don't even care about? Whereas Joss Whedon, I think, knows tropes, knows writing very well and, and makes these very original movies around deconstructing stuff, which is his own kind of subgenre. You know, I don't like it in every one of my movies, but I love the shit out of this. And like I say, I think it works as its own high concept B movie, even without the meta stuff. Obviously it helps if you have seen all these references, but I think it works without it. You know, I think it's an awesome cinematic experience and not a McDonald's happy meal. Like you uh, are trying to make it to be (laughs) (laughs) Carrie. What do you think? I enjoyed it. I'm still grappling with the idea that you can enjoy it and hate it as well. Although I do think, I do think I know what you're talking about. What about my buffet metaphor? Did that not work? (laughs) No, that did kind of work. That kind of worked. Um, I mean, I enjoy the film. I do think it's more of a comedy than a horror. Absolutely. But it's, it seemed to me like he's, and maybe this is what you're saying. He's a bit hypocritical in some ways in that he's making fun of these tropes and then also exploiting them himself. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's self-aware of like, we're going to make fun of what all these or- other horror movies do, but then we're going to, we're going to have to do it also. All right. Here's an example. I, it's, it's, it's not that he's hypocritical necessarily. I think the best way I can describe what I think this movie does is, and I know this is going to be like, look, I don't, I don't like talking bad about other YouTubers and I don't, and even this, this channel I'm going to bring up, I don't have, I don't have any ill will against them, but I'm going to talk about Cinema Sins. You guys know what Cinema Sins, right? Is yeah. basically yeah. they just itemize the problems of the movie, right? The logic of the movie. The logic of the movie. Yeah, they they scrutinize the movie to a level of detail that it's not built for. Yeah. You know, and I is Cinema Sins fun to watch? Yeah, because we all get gratification from kind of this like intellectual one-upmanship of you know like haha they fucked up and I'm smart enough to have realized it. And, uh, you know, we also get gratification from, oh, man, they, they tried to uh, grab me and make me suspend disbelief. But fuck them. You know, I'm seeing a, a logical error in this. And I think that this movie is largely doing the same thing. It's just pointing out these tropes, trivializing them in a really just God, it's it's just such a smug thing. Like you're calling out the writers that preceded you. <laughs> And uh, in a fun way that you admitted to. <laughs> so let, let me let me bring in another example. Smug. So, I can I can get with smug. Yeah. Well, what, well it's a little what, smug. What, what what can't you get with? I don't know yet. Keep going. Okay. So <laughs> let, let me bring, let me bring in another example. So this is the part after Dana like stabs the zombie who uh, in the in the cellar. So at this point, she's holding the knife and Jenkins or Richard Jenkins character pulls a lever in the office and then the knife gets electrified and she drops it. Yeah. As if to say, and then the joke here is that like, oh, okay, well, in horror movies, they kill things, then drop the knife. Why the fuck would they do that? They need it for the next scene. So it's almost as if to say there has to be a guiding force for someone to do something so stupid like drop the knife. Why not take it with them? Almost as if you're calling out the writers for showing themselves too much in their bad writing. But I would argue it's not bad writing. These movies scared the shit out of the people in the theaters back in the day. I think it's like you just deconstruct and dance on the grave of the pieces of work of those who preceded you. Basically, all of these all of these directors, all of these filmmakers very effectively created this tradition of cinema and then here. Here you are just like, you know, just shitting all over it and being ex- what I consider to be extremely, extremely opportunistic and and quite hollow. 
So, but like, the, there is something to be said. Uh, even though I'm, I'm really enjoying your uh, history of horror apology, um, so that that's wonderful. But um, it, it does seem that there is something to say about a loss of innocence, right? So, when you lose that innocence, and you've talked about this, Jared, I know, in, in living in a sort of post cynical world, it's hard to just simply bathe in that naivete anymore, right? So, if we have lost our innocence with regards to watching horror films, if if you go back and watch Friday the Thirteenth, you know, you go back and watch even Halloween, and you're like, fuck, man. Why are you going in the house? Don't do that. Get up and fucking run. Uh, you know, don't split up. Things like that. We we automatically, I think, as a culture in 2018, already make those criticisms in ourselves. And so maybe in a way, and I'm not saying that uh, Drew Goddard slash Goddard uh, was trying to <laughs> do this, but I... I, I think there's a way that we could look at this film and say, okay, maybe it's time for actually like some fresh ways of doing the horrific that don't mm-hmm. simply reproduce those tropes. And that this film is in some ways, yeah, I can see it's irreverence, but I think that irreverence can be quite productive. And so maybe in that I agree. Sense- Me too. I agree. And I'm going to bring up the other Godard. So, so let me just make this point. So even – Jean-Luc Godard created the French New Wave as a way to subvert the Hollywood Golden Age and create a new cinematic language. It was productive. And not only was it productive, it was arguably to compel people to look at their lives critically. And as you've brought up before in this podcast, Austin, perhaps even through a particular political lens. Mm. But I would agree. But I would argue that this is not like Jean-Luc Godard. This is complete nihilism. This is trivializing and bringing attention to cinematic technique just to lampoon the idea of suspension of disbelief altogether. And without that... There is no cinema. There may be video entertainment. There may be television, but not cinema. Do, do you believe, though, that it's really uh, uh, them making fun of the suspension of disbelief? Like, 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 like you seem to I think, think it's that, a very easy thing to do, and it's a very tempting thing to do because I think it's more about the characters, though. It's less like, oh, like, th- like, like, like they're lazy writers because he, she drops the knife or the uh, or whatever. It's more like these characters always find themselves in these situations in horror movies because it's a writing device. Yes, I know, but it's like, (laughs) it's like more like they're getting into it. Like from the character's point of view, they are in this horror movie, but they aren't these characters. Are you talking about the people in the, the people in the cabin in the woods are people in in the office with people in the cabin, people in the cabin. Okay. You know, I mean, are living a real horror movie. And so that's their reality. And, but they're not living. I mean, they're, they're, but it's being manipulated by people who are turning levers. And I those know, are the writers. And those people uh, are the writers. Yeah. And the exactly. rest of the production staff and Sigourney Weaver's the director. Right. Um, and they you have, mean, and they, you and mean and they in the meta even, aspect, the meta reading of the movie? I mean, I in the, it's a symbolic the, reading. I don't know if I would say it's a meta one. Right. But in the, in the movie, they're just, they're just paid staff to work at this. Right. And then facility. like, you, and, and it's, you could see that like, after they think that everyone's dead, except Dana, it's like a, it's like a rap party right and how by the way how did they not know that they were dead because didn't they have like heartbeat meters and stuff at the beginning yeah that's, that's confusing a, that's yeah a that is cinema that is. sin point for yeah, you that's definitely a loose end yeah um anyway i just i yeah i just don't think i, I, think, I think, think you're taking it too far that's fine i do that <laughs> um i think that and, and, and even to my point about it being extremely nihilistic film i mean just look at the last line of this Hey, you were right. Humanity. It's time to give someone else a chance. I love Giant that evil gods. Wish I could have seen them. I know. That would have been a fun weekend, and then the whole world ends. That's when it went from, like, a 10 out of 10 to, like, a 20, 50 out of 10 for me, where I was like, wow, this movie just ends with the whole world being See, taken over I, by gods? Yeah, Thank I you. loved that, dude. When I Why first doesn't saw every that? movie end like that? Right, right? I, I did if not we're see that coming. nihilistic endings, it's I, all about Takashi Miike's Dead or Alive. That's true. Yeah, that, that's the one for me. This one, I, I, don't, I don't give as much... 
uh, stock and well, how about both and one. Jared? Stop putting a wet blanket on our fun here, goddammit. <laughs> well, Jesus. I mean, someone's hey man, someone's got to keep this podcast from being a circle jerk. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, well look, like there, there I, is, I've made my, I've, made, I've made my point clear. I want I want to well, hear more about why you guys love it well, because the, really, once again, like I've definitely watched movies in the last month that I had a lot less fun watching than this one. So I mean, yeah. call me a douchebag, throw a coffee cup at me, but like at the end of the day, I just don't think that this is this is a piece of cinema that's not a very good ally to other cinema. Sure. Mm. So, but then not everyone <laughs> needs to be. Uh, sure. But, I mean, I don't have to like the movie either. It's true. Carrie, were you about to say something? Yeah, I'm still thinking about it. I was going to say, in some ways, I do think it's nihilistic because I've been thinking about God a lot lately, and so maybe that's where my head is at. But to go back to the idea that for a second, um, you know, the kid, who's the kid? that Marty. Marty's like, he's the fool, but he's also the wisest character in the whole group. You know, from the very beginning, He's like, don't, we should get out of this basement. <laughs> we shouldn't be in the cellar. Don't read the Latin. Um, and he's, he's the got, first one. He's got that can, good weed. What'd you say? He's, he's got, he's got the, the treated weed. Sorry. Yeah, the only yeah. real Sorry, statement on. you can come up with is smoke weed every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. But so there's this moment where he goes outside uh, before he, before we think he's dead. And he looks up and says something like, oh, I thought there would be stars. We are abandoned. Mm. And that really made me think of the whole God is dead quote humanity, the idea of humanity being abandoned and there is no God left to protect you. And I, that just kind of sat with me for a while. And so in some ways I do think it is a nihilistic outlook or allegory or whatever you want to call it. Because at the end, like you said, there's nothing that comes and saves these guys. You've got these dark gods who live downstairs who are going to destroy the, the earth and humanity has been abandoned. The only problem with that uh, reading is that I think it, it, it's based on a misreading of Nietzsche and death of God theology. Uh, Nietzsche wasn't a nihilist. He was actually criticizing Christianity for being nihilistic. Uh, the problem is, is that Christians don't like that. And so a lot of times they'll read Nietzsche because he doesn't believe in God. And they say, well, uh, kind of with Dostoevsky's thing, without God, everything is permitted, right? Chaos. There's nothing. There's no meaning. There's no standard of meaning. There's no transcendental signifier or whatever. But really what Nietzsche was saying with the idea that we are – he doesn't say we are abandoned, but let's say I that's a I very, don't think he's a nihilist either though. But I, yeah, you know. Right, no, no, right, right. But, but, even, but even that idea of being alone isn't, a, uh, isn't an indication of nihilism. It's actually an indication of radical freedom and the affirmation of just the material, like of life, nature, and history. And so oh, maybe – so maybe this film – could be read in that vein and that when they say it's time for another you know at the end it's time for something else so gods do your do your dirtiest or whatever that it's actually an affirmation of the um it's just an affirmation of the lack it's an affirmation of the negative which isn't a nihilism but rather is a sort of creative existentialism and i'm just spitballing but maybe so yeah i mean i wanted to bring this back because i think i am i'm on the same page as carrie and i, I want to go back to something i said earlier is that when Jenkins pulls the lever and makes the girl drop the knife, it does bring attention to the idea that our narratives are constructed by a guiding force, like a god. And this movie is all about trivializing the writer, the author, and like and, and, and showing the hollowness of him, showing that, hey, basically, you know, the god that created this movie isn't very clever. I thought mm. it was about evil gods taking over the world, Jared. I like, well, it's I about like that. that too. <laughs> Um, is, is that kind of what you were, is that in the vein of what you were saying, Carrie? I think so. Yes. And I, okay. to go back to the idea of God being dead though, I do disagree with you on one thing, Austin, which is that I think what 
what Nietzsche was saying there is that uh, he, in that same speech, he says, we have killed God and how are we going to console ourselves? And it's, and it's almost like, I read it the same way um, Professor Jordan Peterson reads it, which is, it's almost like he was asking, what are we going to replace God with? What is humanity going to worship instead? And do you view it that way? that passage or is it well so there's two things to say one i think um he's very explicit about that and actually nietzsche mm -hmm. is um but two i think more importantly he says that god is dead but we're not living as though god is dead so that's when the madman is running in the market right but i think if you read his mm -hmm. other works like zarathustra um and if you kind of like take together his corpus and, and look at his project even though it, it isn't as consistent of, of a system of like you know, some other philosophers like Hegel or something like that. Um, I think you do start to see a logic. And what he's ultimately talking about is this idea of the transvaluation of value is what he talks about. And what that means is, is that the sort of standard by which we valorize our lives under the uh, dominance of monotheistic God, that is dead. But the problem is, is we're not living like that. That's why the madman is crazy, right? We're not living like that. We're still living as though God is there. But if we were to kind of take up this mantle of actually living as though the moorings had been released and our boat was just set out, Nietzsche talks about this, this boat that's just being set out on the ocean without a compass, without any sort of guide whatsoever, and you're just out there, then there's a radical freedom that is placed at your feet that you then are to take up and you create on your own. So the question is, is will we create other gods? Sure, probably, because we're not ready yet to deal with the fact that God is dead. So we need we need to be pious towards something. But nevertheless, Nietzsche is always wanting to challenge that and push that further to say, but let's not be pious about the transcendent. Let's just simply be pious towards the imminent, towards the material, towards life, nature, and history. And that's where you get these ideas of about affirmation. So you affirm life. Um, so that's where you get like guys like Gilles Deleuze and, and things like that that come along that read Nietzsche, um, in this affirmational sense that it's, it's rejecting transcendence. We don't need that anymore, even though we're still going to kind of fall into that pattern. And let's just affirm the simplicities and the immediacy of the material or of the imminent world. And so it becomes much more creative at that point as it's placed into your hands to say, well, now you can create however it is that you so desire because we don't need to kind of, uh, measure ourselves according to these fixed absolute standards that don't actually exist. But that's not easy. It's terrifying. And that's the thing. And so, and, and if I can build on that, and I think that there's another interesting thing, there's another element of that where if you look at, so you've got that, what was his name? Is it Jedediah or whatever? The guy at the gas station? The Harbinger. Yeah. The Harbinger. The guy, yeah, it's like the scary hillbilly like, I love the harp. Me too, yeah. man. Me too. And I love that scene when he's fucking talking in his like flowery religious language and he's on speakerphone. Yeah. And they're mocking him. <laughs> That's but, rude. So, so I think there's a wonderful relationship between the men in the office and the harbinger. The harbinger is the religious zealot. He's the one who re he's and and I and I don't mean this in a literal sense, but uh, so my friends out there, I'm I'm a post evangelical. Remember, I came out of the Christian world. I was studying to be a pastor for a while, so don't hate on me too much. But the harbinger is like the evangelical Christian. He's the one hands raised. You know, maybe he even believes in the gifts of the spirit and speaking in tongues and gold dust getting on yourselves or whatever it is when you're in the middle of the religious throngs of the ceremony. He's he's the zealot. He's the literalist, right? He believes it hardcore, whereas. The people in the office, they're like the Catholic Church. They kind of believe, but they kind of don't. And the reason I say they kind of believe is because there's that bit when the first person gets sacrificed where they both say like a little prayer and they kiss that necklace thing that they're wearing. So there's a sense that they have almost become jaded to the ritual because they've experienced it so many times. <laughs> like can happen when you go through like the rote uh, liturgy of 
Catholicism, right? You kind of just go and you show up and you dip your finger in the water and you cross yourself and you take communion. And then afterwards you're like, fucking hey, let's drink. Or maybe you even roll up hungover, you know? So there's a, there's like a They're distancing. making fun of him for his belief. It, it, well, and, and, they're make, and then they're making fun of him for his belief like Catholics do or uh, with, with evangelicals, right? Like, oh my God, they're just like fucking crazy evangelicals. And so I think there's something in there as well that kind of fits into this whole mythology of these gods that we have to placate and that they need a blood sacrifice and it's for the good of humanity because it's gonna, if we don't suppress it, Literally. then it's gonna kill. So there is like a, a, a religious um, play that is that is taking place as well. I, you know, the funny thing is I didn't really read him as any kind of, uh, whether it's he's a religious figure or just someone who's into general mysticism, but I just saw it as like, he's a scary hillbilly from like the Hills Have Eyes or Deliverance, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then they just trivialize it with bathos, which seems to be, and I, and, and I mentioned that, you know, 2012, the year of this movie, the year of the Avengers, this was the first time where the world realized, oh man, people like it when we take things that are serious and then undercut and it. People love bathos. Yeah, but I think The Last Jedi was an indication that people are getting tired of that. People see it now. No, see, that one just wasn't good. That's the big difference. That was just uh, not as fun, well-put-together movie as this movie. Maybe. Now, it's here's too the long. thing. This is like here's a breezy the 90 minutes. Is there, and, and I don't want to say that, it, that Cabin in the Woods was the cause of this, but post-Cabin in the Woods, there have been some amazing horror films that have been done without the tropes of the people in the cabin that this film is, you know, the, the, the kind of like slasher films that this film is, is deconstructing. So you have like, it follows and you have, fuck, I can't remember the name of it. The witch, which are the horror films that audiences have really gravitated towards. And they don't fall into these criticisms at all because maybe, Maybe this is that carry to kind of talk about like the idea of the Nietzschean freedom. Let's say maybe this transvaluation of values within the horror genre itself has taken place and the god of the old horror films has completely been destroyed. And so now we can create a fresh with new tropes and new things and things like that. And that's what we're seeing with this new crop of horror films. So the, the thing I would argue is that I would argue that it's not this film that uh, created that revolution in horror films. It was uh, what is it, Roth? Uh, cabin cabin fever. Cabin fever. Really? I think yeah. that it basically did this same thing except in a more productive manner without constantly breaking the fourth wall. And there's a TV How? show right now, right? Or is there's a remake or something on Netflix, isn't there? Yeah, they remade it. Is it? Yeah, I mean, I haven't the, seen the movie in a long time, but that's why the movie was famous, right? Because it was a fresh, subversive play on the cabin in the woods archetype. But right? it wasn't like any sort of meta movie. It was, no, it wasn't meta. Yeah. I don't think you need to be meta to subvert a, a, a tradition or a trope. Oh, I, mean, I don't even think they subverted it. They just made a really good, funny, cool I have one. To, I'd have to see the movie. If you want to email us at movies at wisecrack.co or .me, let us know because I haven't seen the movie in a no, long time. I, I've I could seen be it. I, I've seen it a bunch of times. I mean, I, I've I know the movie well. Yeah, I mean, it's better. It, it's not. It's not that that Cabin in the Woods was the cause. It's not a causal agent. Just like I don't think Cabin Fever yeah, is necessarily. I, I mean, I see what you're saying. You're arguing that the movie disillusioned us for a productive way because now we have new, fresh horror cinema. Or let's say that the film was. Uh, a reflection of the disillusionment that the audiences were already culturally feeling over a sort of uh, sequence of time, which included other films like Cabin Fever and things like that. And so this film mm. is just simply another example of that disillusionment, which now frees us to kind of have different expectations, which also allows writers and things like that to have a different audience, which will then have a better appeal. So that's why you get films like It Follows and The Witch and things like that that are now going to gain a broader appeal because they're horror films, but they're post-disillusionment 
horror films. So this is a great uh, way to transition to some of our questions. So we're taking some questions from our Discord chat on uh, Wisecrack Plus. So if you want to know more about Wisecrack Plus, it's our member service. Go to wisecrackplus.com and check it out. There's tons of cool perks, and you can help support us and be part of the team. So this is from Mark. Mark says... What's next for the horror genre? Will Get Out inspire more thoughtful and well-made horror films with unexpected twists, or was it just a one-off? What do you guys think? I think that uh, um, the best part about the horror genre is just that it has the most potential because you can make them very cheaply, and they always make a lot of money, just like Get Out's the perfect example. I think it was, what, $5 million? Made a bazillion. I mean, uh, uh, so I don't know. To me, I mean, I watch every horror movie that I can get my hands on every year. And to me, there's always fresh stuff before and after Cabin in the Woods that didn't have to have the slasher tropes and stuff. So I don't know. To me, like, like, yeah, like, like I'm excited with Jordan Peele's next movies. He's definitely one. And the It, it Follows guy. Um, Martyrs. Me and, me and... Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> that dude is awesome. <laughs> um, anyway. The Babadook. There's... Who did the, the Babadook? Babadook? That's an Australian film, I think. Let me right? look up the Babadook. Yeah, it's a female filmmaker. That movie's so good. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you guys think? Well, I'll just jump in if no one else has an opinion. I, I think that I, I'm largely just going to be building off what Ryan said, and that is that I think that the horror genre will always, in today's economic landscape, be the one to continue to push barriers simply because they can afford it. Hmm. You know, if 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 a first of all, studios make very few movies these days, at least that are released theatrically. And then when they do do that, they have to adhere to pretty strict formula because if one of these, you know, $600 million or however much the Avengers, not the Avengers, Justice League, whatever, costs like $400 million. If one of these movies tanks, that's bad news for the yeah. industry. So they don't really have the ability to experiment like Jason Bloom does from, or Blum or from whatever, from Blumhouse. So I think that... I think that – and Jason Blum also is one of the reasons why Get Out was made. So I think that just keep your eyes on him and, yeah, maybe a lot of it is schlocky. Like uh, what, what's the new one he's got coming out? There's a, a billboard right near, right near our office of a new Jason Blum movie know. coming out. Some of it might seem schlocky, but I'm always excited to see it because he at least has the opportunity to push the envelope. Yeah, I mean I think from a conceptual level, philosophical or philosophically – we're always going to make horror films because I think what is being displayed in horror films is that what is truly horrific is ourselves. It's just projections of ourselves and our fears and things like that. So it, it isn't really monsters and ghouls that we're afraid of, but really what we're afraid of is the capacity for the human to be monstrous because that's really what is monstrous is it's ourselves. And so I think horror films will always be made. Agreed. My favorite horror movie that came out last year was The Devil's Candy. You should check that out mm. if, uh, for recommendation. I also really liked Split, and I think I brought that up two podcasts ago. Oh, I like that too. And I did like the ones that Austin mentioned, uh, The Witch in particular. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that one yet. I wasn't oh, as hot dude. on The Witch. You weren't as hot on The Witch. I, I mean, I like the I like the scary goat and everything, but <laughs> I don't know. It was pretty slow, boring for me, but teach his own. Yeah, yeah, All right, yeah. so this, uh, this next question is from Melanie. I'm afraid I may have disappointed Melanie. Melanie says, <laughs> I love Cabin in the Woods, probably one of the most intelligent horror movies out there. Or maybe I'm just a huge Bradley Whitford fan. Either way, I think its genius comes from breaking down traditional horror tropes and exploring both the absurdity and almost mythology that surrounds the genre. Mm. But my question is, could it also be seen as an indictment of reality television with the middle-aged white guys pulling all the strings in the background and the almost voyeuristic schadenfreude enjoyment as they watch – the horror unfold. I think it's easy to draw a parallel. What do you guys think about that? 
Yeah. I don't know if that's strictly reality. I, th I mean, like, it, it, that's basically the same point that, you know, we're talking about, about with horror movies or that Austin was making, like, you know, our voyeuristic, we want to see this, you know, happen to these people in horror movies. It's kind of, um, so, yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily just about reality TV. I mean, I think I don't, it's not just about that, but I think, yeah, I mean, if we're going to take a, a sort of broadened reading, then yeah, I think you can sure. see it as an you indictment can apply it of reality. To that. But I will say this. So uh, I used to uh, date an actor who was on a TV show and she was on a show that's actually a wonderful indictment of reality television called Unreal. If none of you have seen Unreal, that fucking TV show is like a behind the scenes on what actually takes place in a Bachelor themed type of television show. Have any of you guys seen that? I have not, no. Okay, uh, um, it doesn't have like a huge audience because it's on, fuck, what is it? It's on like, it's like Lifetime or some shit like that, but it's not Lifetime style. I'm telling you, it is It is legit. It's called Unreal and it's basically, it's written by a woman who was a former producer on The Bachelor and then she wrote a short film um, about like kind of all the shit that goes on behind it, but it was done from a scripted sense and then they turned it into a TV show and it's about, it's like Aaron Sorkin style where it's like it's about a show. So it's the behind the scenes of a show that they're making. So they're making a reality show, a Bachelor style reality show. But it's about all the sort of production shenanigans and uh, everything that goes on with the cast and whatnot. But it is fucking awesome in terms of uh, of this type of commentary on on popular culture. Jared, remind me, do you like the movie Funny Games? I've actually only seen the original one. And God, do I like it? Kind of. I think I like it because you know that, that I, I, it's not my favorite. To me, Michael that also Haneke is movie. that's also very cynical, nihilistic yes. Yes. Uh, deconstruction of yeah. Maybe movies. I don't like it. That's okay. a <laughs> that's a nihilistic one because that's about the violence um, on 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 screen, right? Like the visual, the image yeah. of violence, right? And yeah, Hanukkah rewind it. Yeah, and he's rewinding. and he's yeah. explicit. I think that he's trying to tackle that, and maybe it's not even nihilistic. It's almost pedantic. Right, like he's yeah. like he's kind of a bit heavy-handed, but I think it's brilliant. I have a love-hate with Michael Haneke. Some of them I love, like Caché, like Benny's video. Some of them are unwatchable. Code Unknown, unwatchable. What about a more? <laughs> I even think. Come on, that's a good one. I that's like a good that one. one. That's yeah. watchable. White Ribbon's awesome. Oh, White Ribbon. I Ribbon's fell asleep great. during that one. I love White Ribbon. One of the things. One of the man. To, to, it was Melanie, right, that asked that question. Yeah. One of the things she said that was interesting is she used the word mythology, right, about about horror right. films. And one of the things I thought was cool that this film did is maybe not even knowingly, but you know, there was this moment when um, the blonde character—I can't remember what her character's name is—but the first one to die when she does that seductive dance to the wolf, and she, she kind of uses language from Little Red Riding Hood. And one of the things that I think is really <laughs> interesting that this film Dicky does Pop. is. Is we think of Little Red Riding Hood as being like this innocent story about this girl and don't talk to strangers, but really in its more um, archaic formulations, it was actually a story about uh, sexual becoming and male predators. And some people think that the red of her cape was to signify her menstrual cycle as she's growing into a woman, going through the forest of womanhood, and that in order to truly be a, a proper woman in the 1800s or even prior to that, because the story actually has its roots even prior to that, you had to uh, preserve yourself away from men, and so you need to stay away from it. So there's this weird conservative mythology that I think cuts through in this horror film that actually is a characteristic of so many horror films, right? Like it's always the people who have sex that die, the people who are debaucherous 
that die. And so it's like these weird morality tales. And this film sort of subverts that a little bit because the main character, she's a quote unquote virgin. But remember at the end, they're like, hey, we work with what we can. I know we you're not actually a virgin. Yeah. <laughs> I love but that contextually, <laughs> society has changed and, you know, it's okay, but the gods are cool. You know, they understand that context is different and things like that. So I like the idea of the mythology of this film. I got another question from Pilgrim. Uh, and I like this one. It's a nice meta question. He said, I always wondered why the other countries in the movie never seem to step up their game over the years. America <laughs> and Japan, Japan having a flawless record, seem to carry all the weight when making these sacrifices. Is this a comment on the state of horror films being put out by other countries, as mm. in America and Japan making the only quality horror films? You know, I, I also thought it could be a reading on, because uh, basically that means that everyone escapes from them, right? Uh, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, yeah. They I mean, destroy the monsters. Maybe escape. Americans are just dumb enough to get killed by these things every year. <laughs> <laughs> That's another reading. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I, yeah. So, are, yeah, so, is it a, is it a commentary on how s not scary their stuff is, or on how smart their people are? Well, first of all, I think that the reason why the Japanese one failed was simply because they needed to raise the stakes that it had to be all up to them well no, that, it was just that particular group of nine-year-old girls was good remember it's very right. easy to kill <laughs> nine-year-old girls right, right that's right. what the guy said i'm just saying that obviously it's an american movie made for an american audience so the american horror tropes that are being deconstructed <laughs> are the ones that have to be at the forefront and in order to just you know get us into the third act we have to you know it has to be all well, up to them of course, that, of course. that's okay, why fine. yeah you're right in the script <laughs> In terms of, I, I mean, look, are America and Japan the best? I don't know. I mean, it, I I was like, well, where's Korea? You yeah. know, they, they have a fucking amazing horror films. Well, what's your favorite uh, Korean horror? Of film? course, Old Boy. That's a Korean horror film. I would, yeah, I wouldn't call that a horror. That's not the same. You really, you put that like right next to Nightmare on Elm Street. That's a different genre. I don't think so. Why? Why is it that like we have to think of horror films as like the jump scare thing? It like, doesn't have to be, but I'm just saying that that they're clearly. Uh, the kind of horror movies they're talking about are the ones that f focus on supernatural, weird, bad guys. Well, I don't know if that's true because I think that that's actually precisely one of the things that we can extrapolate from just the little bit that we see about the other countries and the way that they address the horrific. So I mean, look at the big board. It's you that know? it's cultural. The, exactly. It's cultural. Right. So you're seeing the, the clip that we see of Japan is what is culturally scary in, in Japan. And actually – I have a friend who's Korean who used to talk about, you know, the stuff of her nightmares being these women with long black hair <laughs> levitating. I'm like, whereas the, the stuff of my nightmares are zombies. Yeah, the and stuff so, of my nightmares used to be zombies. And now it's people with long black hair levitating because of the importation <laughs> of Korean horror films. So thanks uh, to Roy Lee and uh, all of you over there at Vertigo. All right, I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you, everyone, on our Patreon, that wisecrackplus.com, for sending in these questions. We will still continue to do email mailbag, uh, so be sure to continue emailing us at movies at wisecrack.me or .co. Uh, looking forward to your questions. Uh, and next week, we will be covering Fargo, the 1994 Coen oh, yeah. Brothers movie. I never actually look up what the year is before this, so I'm winging it. Is it 94? I think it's 95, I want to say. 95? I guess 94 was the Schindler's List year, so I guess 95 would have to have been... I'm going to go with 95, maybe 96. 95. I'm going to throw my hat in with 95 as well. Okay. The perhaps 1995 film Fargo, we're going to be doing that next week, so be sure to watch that. And then once we reschedule with our collaborator, we will do Zodiac eventually, so don't worry about that. I want to thank Carrie for joining us. It was fun having you on, Carrie. It was so much fun. It was enjoyable, and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Fargo, 1996, <laughs> imdb.com. Oh, 1996. Well, we all fucked up. I, uh, I got it. I got it. 
That was my second guess. All right. Well, why don't we just guess every year in the 90s? <laughs> I had two. All right. <laughs> where can we find you guys on the internet? Yo, Carrie, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Medium, uh, K-S-E Mamma Jamma. And do you have a Twitter? Same thing, K-S-E Sweet. Mamma Jamma. What do you put on Medium? What's on there? A couple of essays. Personal essays. Sweet. And Ryan? Uh, you can find Ryan Shorts weekly comedy videos on YouTube and Facebook. And Austin. And you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. And let's get into all this weird meta shit, people. I like to... Hell yeah. 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 Let's all do right. it. You can find me on Instagram, see pictures of my dog at, at Father of Woody. They're beautiful. Fine yeah, art. thank you. Uh, and then you can hit me up. Uh, I've been friending people on Facebook. You can hit me up there if you so desire. I don't have a Twitter because I'm a technophobe and social media is bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's it for today, guys. Thanks a lot for listening. Peace. Peace out, film fans from Hollywood, California. Laters. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>